Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If you haven't already, you can open up to John chapter 20. We're going to be in the last verses of John. We're going to start in verse 19. Um, I've heard it said, maybe you've heard this said before, that a good doctor doesn't just treat the sickness, but they also treat the patient. They don't just treat the sickness, but they also treat the patient. You go, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that um, if I have a headache, I I usually don't go to the doctor for headaches, but I think we'll make the point. If I have a headache, it matters whether I take children's Tylenol or like normal adult extra strength Tylenol, right? I think I did the math and I would probably have to drink like a bottle, half a bottle of children's Tylenol for it to get the same like dosage, right? Based on weight and don't start figuring out my weight, okay. But my, five, my five-year-old son, I'm, I am five times bigger than him. I'll say it that way. So if I, if I take what he takes for a headache, I'm probably gonna, it's probably not gonna do a whole lot. If he takes what I take for a headache, he might have a few problems, right? Like it matters. It matters that we don't just address the sickness, but we also address the patient. And that's why good doctors will take into account like your age, your weight, your physical, like your current physical condition, your medical history, all those things. It isn't just enough that it's like, well, you have this sickness. You as a patient matter as well in the diagnosis because good doctors meet their patients where they're at in order to know how to get them to where they need to be. And what we see at the end of John chapter 20 here is that Jesus is doing exactly what a good physician does. And what Jesus is doing here at the end of John chapter 20 is he's meeting two different kinds of people exactly where they're at in order to help them get to where they need to be. So look at this first kind of person that Jesus meets. The first kind of person that Jesus meets here is the fearful. John chapter 20, verse 19. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. So they had heard uh, last week, we saw that Mary met Jesus at the beginning of the day. So Jesus has risen on the third day. He has revealed himself to Mary and Mary now goes and tells the disciples. But even though the disciples had heard Mary's testimony of seeing the risen Christ, like her testimony, you'd think that her report would dispel their fears. They'd be like, awesome. But it did nothing of the sort because here they are huddled in a room, doors locked, curtain closed because they feared the Jews. Like the ultimate cancel culture, right? You think like what people do to people online is bad. Like they they literally crucified Jesus Christ. They crucified their leader and their Lord. And these disciples in their minds, they're thinking we must be next. For all they knew, their mugshots were in, the, like all, in all the post offices. I don't know if they had post offices. They probably did. Somehow they got mail, right? Like in all the post offices, they were on all the telephone poles because they had telephones, okay? But like, like they are wanted men and they know it. Like they are so fearful of what is going to happen to them because of their association with Jesus, because of their connection with Jesus. They're so afraid. Have you ever felt that way? Now, probably not to the extent where you, you've locked yourself in a room, you've pulled the curtains closed. 
but maybe to a lesser degree. Maybe you don't barricade your house because you're afraid, but maybe you barricade your mouth because you're afraid of what might happen to you if people knew that you're one of those Jesus people. What'll happen to me if I actually say out loud what I believe about Jesus? What'll happen to me if I actually tell people that they are in need of a savior too? What'll happen? Maybe you remember back at the beginning of October as we're walking through John chapter 15, I described that there are generally two kinds of Christians. You remember that? We have the obnoxious Christians and that we have the anonymous Christians. And we talked about like, like what kind of, uh, what are the distinguishing markers of an obnoxious Christian? What are the distinguishing markers of, of an anonymous Christian? And if you're in a connection group, you know that, that our elders, we rotate through connection groups because uh, we don't just want to be like names in your minds, but we actually want to like get to know you in some meaningful way. And so you've probably had an elder go through your connection group from time to time. And, and I remember on the week that we were looking at John chapter 15, as we went into connection groups that week and are participating in the discussions, a large majority of us identify, like self-identified as anonymous Christians, which I said in the message, if you remember that, my guess is that that is probably what is most true of Christians in the Cedar Valley, that we, most of us aren't in danger of necessarily being obnoxious, but most of us are in danger of being anonymous because we're so afraid of what people think. We're so afraid of what will happen if we identify with Christ. You see, for all intents and purposes, most of us are like these disciples. Doors locked, curtains drawn, lips closed. And I'm not saying this to like put us on a massive guilt trip or anything like that. But I'm saying this because it begs the question, what does Jesus do with people like that? What does Jesus do with people like, like you and me, like fearful people who are afraid to open our mouths because of what might happen if we identify with Jesus? What does Jesus do? Look back at verse 19. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. So you would maybe expect that Jesus, at this point, uh, would kind of be fed up with the disciples. We've, we, like, if you read the Gospels, you see that the disciples are like most other people, and they're constantly missing the point. And so you'd think that Jesus would come into this room of scared disciples and go, what is wrong with you? You big babies. What a bunch of cowards. You'd think he'd rebuke them. But he doesn't say that. What does Jesus say to the fearful? Peace. Peace be with you. You see, Jesus comes to fearful people like you and me. He knows our fears. He knew their fears. And he stepped into their fears and gave them peace with his presence. He gave them peace with his presence. And then after giving them peace with his presence, like th that shocking, right? He gives them a new perspective. Look at verse 20. 
Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He gave them a new perspective that he had actually risen from the dead. That guys, everything that you saw happen to me, everything that you ran away from, for me, it was merely a flesh wound. See the scars. This is not some lookalike. This is not some some doppelganger of Jesus. This is Jesus in the flesh, scars in his hands and his side, standing right in front of them. He gives them a new perspective. And into that, into that peace and into that perspective, he gives them a new purpose. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's saying to these guys like, hey guys, I know you're afraid of the world, but look at my scars. Clearly, I've overcome the world. Clearly, I have won. Like, like the, the buzzer has sounded. The bell has rung. Like, I scored the final shot. I have won. And now, you have a new purpose to go into a dark world, just like I came into a dark world. He gives them peace with his presence. He gives them a new perspective, and he gives them a new purpose. But not only that, he also gives them new power. Look at verse 22. After saying this, after saying, I send you just as I have been sent, he says this. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Christian, this morning, for those of you who are fearful, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead so that you would anonymously huddle in shadows so that you would keep your mouth shut. No, Jesus Christ rose from the dead to give you peace with his presence, to give you a new perspective that he has in fact risen, to give you a new purpose as a sent one and to give you new power as you go. That we would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now for you you Bible students, maybe these two verses, verse 22 and 23, are a little bit confusing because maybe you say, uh, how in the world did Jesus give them the Holy Spirit here if they're going to get the, if they're going to get the Holy Spirit in Acts 2? Did they get it twice? Did they not get it? Did they only get it then? What's going on here? Here's what I think is going on here. What I think is going on with this receive the spirit language is I think what is happening here is Jesus is acting out symbolically what happened in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the Holy Spirit is portrayed as the breath of God. So Jesus here with his disciples literally exhales on them and connects his breath to the Holy Spirit that they are going to soon receive in Acts chapter two. And they would have made the connection that ah, the breath of God is the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit comes from God, so for Jesus to exhale on us is for him to connect himself with God. This is Jesus once again saying, I am God because only God can give his spirit. And so I think what is happening is that he's doing this as a symbolic act in order to once again emphasize the fact that he's God. I don't think that right here the disciples actually received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But I think Jesus is acting out what will happen soon in Acts chapter 2. Another reason why I think that it's symbolic is because just a few verses later, we're going to see the disciples once again huddled in a locked room, which is hardly indicative of indwelling spirit power. 
So that's what I think is going on. But look at verse 23. Here's, here's another kind of issue, especially if you're from a Roman Catholic background. This might strike you as a little odd. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What does this mean? Does this mean that these disciples in and of themselves had the power to forgive sins and in and of themselves had the power to condemn people to hell forever in their sin? Not exactly. Because the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that it's only God who, for, who can forgive sins. This is why Jesus, whenever he forgives the sins of people in the presence of the Pharisees, they want to kill him because they realize that as he is declaring that someone is forgiven, he is claiming to be God because only God can forgive sins. And God has made provision for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that if you receive the gospel, your sins are forgiven. If you don't receive the gospel, your sins aren't forgiven. So any power to forgive or retain sins doesn't rest in the ability of the messenger, but it rests in the power of the message. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, as you go, filled with your new purpose and enabled with this new power, as you go and declare the message of the gospel, you will be able to look someone in the eye and say they are forgiven or they are not forgiven based on how they respond to the gospel message. See, in and of themselves, they have no power to look at someone and go, I forgive you, I don't forgive you. No, no, no. What they will be able to say is, have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, you are forgiven. Based on the gospel, not based on the messenger. You see, Jesus meets them in their fear with the peace of his presence to give them a new perspective, to show them their new purpose and to enable them with new power. Christian, if you're living a life of anonymous fear, it's because you are more focused on your weakness instead of his power in you. Have you ever been behind a sports car that is driving below the speed limit? Is that not the most frustrating thing <laughs> in all the world, right? Because here you are, right? You're behind this Corvette or this Porsche. I don't know what else nice cars we have here in Cedar Falls. Like, I haven't seen a Lamborghini yet, but something fast, okay? And you pull up behind them in your Toyota Sienna, which, hey, if you, or Honda Odyssey, if you got a minivan, praise God, okay? So... <laughs> I don't know if there'll be minivans in heaven, we'll see. So, but you pull up behind them and it's like they're going, but like you're riding their tail and you all know what you think. At least if you're, you know, recognizing the situation, you're like, how, what is going on? Like I go zero to 60 in three weeks. And somehow, like I am like pushing the limits behind this Corvette, what is going, like all the power is there, man. It's all there. Like you have to change nothing about your car. You just gotta step on the gas and go. Why have a sports car? If you have a sports car and you're not constantly getting speeding tickets, why do you have a sports car? Like, <laughs> that's the point, right? 
fearful Christian, fearful anonymous Christian, you and me, we have the infinitely powerful spirit of God himself living within us. The power is there. You and I need to step out of the shadows and Jesus is calling us to step on the gas. It's all right there. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. So Jesus appears to the fearful, and now he appears to the doubters. Look at verse 25, or 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, right at the offset, I think Thomas gets, gets a bad rap here. But see, we don't, we don't know why Thomas wasn't with the disciples the first time Jesus came. We don't, we don't know why, but he wasn't. And despite them telling him what they saw, He's like, I'll never believe it unless I see it for myself. Like if, if Missouri is the show me state, Thomas is the show me disciple, okay? But Thomas, just, just think about this for a second. So Thomas, I suppose you could say that by this point, Thomas was religiously disappointed. Because imagine this. So Thomas has walked with Jesus for a number of years. He's heard the teachings. He's seen the miracles. He's believed that he's the Messiah. And he had particular expectations for what that actually meant. Like Jesus as the Messiah is going to do these kinds of things. So he thought. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Thomas's expectations died with him. Have you ever been religiously disappointed? For, for you, it, may, it might be a miracle that you're even here right now because you've been so religiously disappointed. Like you, you had expectations about how you thought God was gonna work, about how you thought God was gonna move. Like, like God, I thought you were gonna come through. Like I prayed for that person in their sickness and they didn't get healed. I prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen. I prayed for that job and I, I'm still unemployed. Like God, I had all these expectations, but you haven't come through. Or maybe you've been let down by the church. Maybe you've been, been let down by other believers. And you're like, man, I, they say that they're Christians, but why in the world did they act that way? Why in the world did they respond that way? Why in the world did they say that thing to me? Like you had expectations and nothing came through. Maybe you've been so let down, so disappointed that you've even began to doubt whether this whole Christianity thing is real at all. Guess what? You aren't the first one. You aren't the first one and you aren't alone. See, check it out. It's barely been a week. It's been almost exactly a week since Jesus rose from the dead and there's already someone just like you struggling with the same kind of religious disappointment that maybe you're struggling with. 
Now, notice a couple things about the nature of Thomas's doubt. Okay, so first, so Thomas is disappointed and it is, it's leading him into doubt. The first thing we see about the nature of Thomas's doubt is that what Thomas is doubting is the very center of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead and if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the very center. It's not just that Jesus died, but that he rose again. And if, if Jesus did not rise again, then Christianity is a sham. We are wasting our life. We're wasting our time. And we are of all people most to be pitied. It's the very center which is to say, like, for, like we, could, we could bag on Thomas all day, like, oh, doubting Thomas, but at least he's doubting the most important part. Like, at least he's not caught up with some, like, peripheral issue. He's like, nope, very center. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Until I see it, I won't believe it. This is to say, especially for those of you who have doubts about this whole Christianity thing, for all the doubts you may have, at least let the first thing you wrestle with, I'm not saying don't wrestle with anything else, but at least let the very first thing you wrestle with be, did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? Let that be the first doubt you wrestle with. Because the answer to that will inform every other question you have, every other problem you have. Secondly, so firstly, G Thomas's doubt was at the very center of the Christian faith. Secondly, Thomas's doubt wasn't unconditional. You see, Thomas didn't say, I'll never believe, period. Like he didn't say, nothing you tell me, nothing you show me, nothing you do will make me believe, will convince me otherwise. No, his doubt was genuine because genuine doubt will always be willing, willing to receive genuine answers. That's genuine doubt. Genuine doubt is always willing to receive genuine answers. You see, doubt and cynicism and skepticism are like in and of themselves almost held as like badges of honor today, right? Like it's like somehow it's the most noble thing to be cynical about anybody trying to make some sort of truth claim. Like it's somehow noble to simply be certain that you can't be certain about anything, which by the way, makes absolutely no sense. Because if you say you can't be certain about anything, I'll ask, are you certain about that? <laughs> Like to say that is a claim to certainty. So it makes absolutely no sense. But you see, Thomas doubted, Thomas doubted, but his doubt was that the main thing of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Thomas's doubt was not unconditional. It wasn't closed off. It wasn't a no matter what the evidence kind of doubt. It was a genuine doubt. But then look at this. Man, this is so cool. Look at this. Verse 26. I just want to read the first half of this verse. Maybe you'll see what's happening here. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas 
was with them. A week later, do you see what's happening here? Jesus revealed himself to Mary. Mary told the disciples, they didn't believe it. Jesus revealed himself to the, the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas didn't believe it. A week later, here the disciples are again, hiding in a room, and Thomas was with them. What does that tell us? That tells us that in the midst of Thomas's doubting, he didn't abandon his community. And his community didn't abandon him. It's been a week. Thomas has already looked them in the face and said, I think you guys are full of it. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. So what are we, what are we having for dinner? <laughs> Thomas doesn't abandon his community. This happens all the time. Like for what, like, where what, for whatever reason, someone will be wrestling with their faith. And maybe that's you this morning, like someone like wrestling with genuine questions. And I'm not talking about this kind of like cynical doubt that's never satisfied, that no answer will ever do. I'm talking about like genuine struggles that is open to genuine answers, right? And in this season of this kind of wrestling, it can be so easy for you who are doubting to begin to distance yourself from other believers, you got these questions, ah, and you begin to not really know your place. And because of that, just like the discomfort, and it seems like you're the only one who has all these questions, which by the way, you're not, but it feels like that. And so you start to like distance yourself. You stop coming to church. That's why maybe it's a miracle you're here because this might've been like the last week, right? Like after this, I'm done. You stop coming to church. You stop showing up to connection group. You stop interacting on the text thread, which is really easy in group chats anyway, but like, you're just kind of like, ah, I'm just, ah. Silence. You start to pull away from other believers in your life when you're in this, in this like season of doubting and little do you know that just like a zebra that is like out in the open, the most dangerous place for you to be in your doubt is by yourself. Yeah, Thomas had his doubts, but here he is still with the disciples. He doesn't abandon his community, but this is also key. His community doesn't abandon him. I have unintentionally made this mistake a few times. So I've, I've had to sit across the table from some people and ask for their forgiveness, where even though we're on like totally different universes as far as like our beliefs, I've had to own like, hey, in your season of doubting, I totally did that really poorly. Because here's what, here's what I've done, and here's what I think some of us can do, is that when we interact with someone who has doubts, sometimes we think that the, that the only thing they need is more information. Like, read this book, listen to this podcast, read this article, watch this clip. Like, we think, oh, they're having doubts, they have questions. Well, the only thing they need then are good answers. And if they're genuinely doubting, they'll be open to genuine answers, which all of that is good. All that's like, we need to bring truth to bear on the conversation. But what we also need in addition to information is someone who will like walk with us. 
who will stand side by side with us and walk with us as we struggle to find genuine answers to our genuine, to our genuine questions. Church, our friends who are struggling don't only need information, though that is good. They don't only need information. What they also need is incarnation. They need an embodied person to walk with them, to be patient with them, to challenge them, to speak truth, to go like, to like, go like, man, it seems like the only thing you're certain about is being uncertain. You know that makes no sense, right? Like, that's okay to say that. They need someone to think with them, to read with them. Don't just throw information at them, engage with that information with them, to enter into their struggle with them. Now, this isn't to say that we celebrate doubt. By no means do we celebrate doubt. But we, while at the same time we shouldn't celebrate doubt, we also shouldn't abandon the doubters. But instead, we need to pull our friends in close who are struggling with these questions because we believe that there are good answers to those hard questions. Thomas didn't abandon his community and his community didn't abandon him. And it was in the midst of his doubt, while he remained in the midst of his community, that Jesus met Thomas with the very evidence he needed. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. See, this, this is so amazing because Jesus wasn't there to hear Thomas's prerequisite to belief. This is exactly what Thomas was asking for. He said, if, if I don't see the scars, if I, don't, if I don't put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus, though not being there to hear that, knows exactly what he needs. And he meets him right where he's at with the very evidence he was looking for. And when confronted with the evidence, Thomas, notice this, Thomas doesn't change the subject. Thomas doesn't like move, like go, that's great, but yeah, but what about this? You, you, know, you know how you can tell the difference between like a genuine doubter and a, and a stubborn cynic is if they just keep moving the goalposts. Like no answer will ever do. But Thomas doesn't do that. When he's confronted with the evidence, he says the very thing that each of us in this room must say if we are going to be Christians. Look at verse 28. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Notice that he doesn't just say, you are Lord. He doesn't just say, you are God, like a, like a statement of fact. Like, like demons can do that. Demons can say, yep, don't like it, but he's in charge. He's Lord. Yep, he's God. He doesn't just say that. No, Thomas makes it intensely personal. He says, my Lord and my God. Certainly we, we are called into a community of faith, but we absolutely, as individuals in this room, have to declare for ourselves that Jesus Christ is Lord if we are going to be Christians. Have you personally believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Now, some might say, 
when asked, like, if you're a Christian, maybe you'd say, my church. Maybe you'd say, my family. Maybe you'd say, my baptism, my confirmation. How about this? Maybe you'd say, my belief that there is a God. But until you say, Jesus is my Lord, and Jesus is my God. You aren't a Christian. You aren't a Christian. Have you believed in Jesus Christ that he lived, died, and rose again so that you could be forgiven and walk in newness of life? Have you done that? Friends, verse 31 very end of this passage, the end of this chapter, we're getting very close to the end of this book. Verse 31. But these are written, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus meets us where we're at, but he doesn't meet us where we're at to leave us where we're at. He meets us where we're at to call us to faith and to call us to obedience. Praise God that he can take a coward like Peter and make him a rock. Praise God that he can take a doubter like Thomas and make him a witness. And praise God that he can meet people like you and me where we are at and do the exact same thing. Friends, believe in Jesus this morning. Submit to him as Lord. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in your new purpose as one who is sent into the world, just as Jesus was sent into the world for you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we submit to your lordship this morning. You are Lord, Master, Savior. King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise you this morning. God, thank you for meeting us in our fear, for giving us the Holy Spirit who lives within those who have believed so that we would have boldness and not hide in the shadows, so that we would have strength and not fearfulness. Help us to be bold witnesses for you, Jesus. Oh God, for those who are doubting this morning or wavering in their faith, would you meet them where they are at? Do you help them to not abandon their community? Would you help us as a church to not abandon them? And would you meet them where they are with the answers they seek? And would we join them in joyful declaration and saying, my Lord and my God, help us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.